Just a quick heads up, this episode has some trigger warnings. We do discuss suicide and addiction. If you are triggered by those things, please be mindful. We acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Welcome to today's podcast. It's so nice to have you. So today on the podcast, we have Amy. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, thank you so much for coming. So our usual first question is, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Blue Mountains at the very base in a smallish town called Lithgow and it was incredibly cold. And I lived there for 15 years and moved up when I was 15 to Queensland with my family. So I've been living in Queensland and in Logan for the last X amount of years <laughs> since I was 15. Awesome. And how did you get into the disability sector? Um, in a weird, twisty turn of events. I actually started out in finance and worked in banking for eight or nine years and found that my passion was more around helping people with their financial goals and barriers to excessive spending and things. And I decided to study psychology at uni and really loved it. So then decided to get some experience in the sector by volunteering for different organisations. And I started volunteering and it was very different to the textbook stuff that I was learning and I found that it was there was a huge gap in what I was learning to being confronted with a person in front of me and I enjoyed that a lot more so I then got a job at that organization coordinating different events and activities and that was a mental health service and I just really loved it so then I delved more into the support work side of things and supporting people more in that mental health space than um, a physical disability and just realised that there was just this huge gap in people with the knowledge and experience that could actually practically apply that in the community. And, yeah, I just really, really loved that aspect and I, and I thought I had a good skill set to be able to transfer those skills to the real world outside of uni textbooks. Amazing. I completely agree. Like uni doesn't really prepare you unless you grew up surrounded by severe mental illness. You've got no chance of understanding what it's really going to be like. Yeah. And the first time you're confronted with people with particularly severe mental illness, you're like, 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there's also, when you have that personal experience, you're looking at it through a different lens. Yeah. And then to have that lived experience with someone close to you, there's a lot more, there's a lot more personal investment. And not to say that there's not personal investment when you're caring for people, but your lived experience and the things that you have been through with that person is just a small part of a much bigger picture. And there's so much more to know and there's so much more that different people are struggling with. And, you know, that's just one small piece. So you have now become a psychosocial recovery coach. So can you tell me a little bit about what a psychosocial recovery coach does? That is a very golden question, which I think a lot of people are still wanting the answer to. So I have been doing the recovery coaching role for about 12 months. It is a pretty new role within the NDIS um, in terms of how long the NDIS has been around. But for me, I see the psychosocial recovery coach role as, and this is controversial, but it's a bit of a mix between support coordination, support work, and a little bit of therapy. And I think those all those things combined, you're sitting more with people, you're helping them work through things as they're working through things, you're not necessarily doing things with them, but it's very targeted and it's all through a mental health framework. So you're acknowledging that there are barriers that are different for each person and that the severeness of that barrier is different for every person. And I see the role as more of a mental health role that is funded by NDIS rather than an NDIS role that just happens to have some mental health thrown in. Awesome. That's the description I would give. So I really like that description. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) For the sake of our listeners, I'll just let you know that the acronym for Psychosocial Recovery Coach is PRC. So for the rest of this episode, we might say PRC for the sake of brevity and just because every day we when we talk about psychosocial recovery coach we tend to use PRC how because the PRC is a has a little bit of support coordination in with it how can a support coordinator and a PRC work together in harmony <laughs> uh i think having a clear understanding of what each role does. I think there's such strengths to both and sometimes they do overlap and I think we've all seen it where people have funding for only a support coordinator and they probably need to have a PRC as well or vice versa, PRC, but there's still all of those things that need to be done and they need to, should really have support coordination. And I think for anyone that supported someone with either funding I think you know full well the types of things that are outside your scope and I think just having that communication and being really transparent and talking to people and saying you know this is what this role does and this is what this role does and this is where we can work together so that it's not so confusing for the person in the middle going I don't even know what a PRC does which is what I hear all the time and then going well this is what I do 
I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to your house. I might help you go visit Centrelink or, you know, these kinds of things where we're going with people to do things that are harder and that they need to build that capacity to do for themselves. And they want to do, but they just need that extra support. Absolutely. So my tip is always when a PRC and a support coordinator are going to work together, at the very beginning, you should go, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And there will be some things, because the support coordination funding is often way less, that the support coordinator can say, if it relates to mental health, do you mind putting these bits and pieces in place and then I'll put these bits and pieces in place and we'll catch up once a month and just make sure everything's going hunky-dory or something like that. Yeah. That's where I see the ideal of it sort of working and that the my understanding and you're here to correct me is I think the to my mind the PRC is more often than the person for the participant to call if there's kind of an issue. Yeah, and I I think you're right that there is generally more funding in the PRC role because there is that more, you're, you're there more, you're more reachable, you're more responsive and that's because there's more time there and the stuff that you're working with with someone that you might be supporting is going to be longer because there are those mental health challenges, there are those trauma responses to certain things and that takes time to work through. It's not a, you know, let's set you up with a psychologist and these are the sessions that you have. It's let's talk about why you don't want to see a psychologist or, you know, going through and building up someone's confidence and capacity to then take that next step, which, you know, may not happen for a few months. Yeah. So that then brings you into contact with a bunch of different systems because I think you said previously taking someone into Centrelink and I assume also sometimes into the Department of Housing to get them on the Department of Housing list or, you know, whichever department they are needing. So that brings me to the mental health system And at the moment, I'm seeing issues. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. The system not working as it ideally should. Where does a PRC come in in those circumstances? Uh, I think, well, part of what I do is try and be a connector of sorts. So, The NDIS has acknowledged that there are people with ongoing mental health barriers and challenges and that's great. There are gaps in that and there are other services and organisations that might offer different things. So part of how I see and how I do the PRC role is what else is out there because unfortunately there is no no mental health hub There is no mental health system that is all-encompassing. And at the moment, I think there's a lot of of different factors at play. And, you know, you you have people who have 
a physical disability, an intellectual disability, mental health challenges, you have neurodivergence, and then there's a crossover a lot because people are people. And there's not really anything that does any one thing. So as a PRC, it's like, okay, so the public system will fund a mental health care plan. That's great. It's time limited. There are, you know, a set amount of sessions you can access within a set amount of time. After you've waited an extensive period of time to access that service, so then what else is there? So it's acknowledging that there is some other things out there to assist with mental health. It's finding them, knowing them and waiting for them to be available. I have a recent example of trying to deal with the hospital system that I felt really let a participant down. So my participant had a suicide attempt and was not in great shape, was taken in an ambulance to a public hospital. The public hospital fixed them up in terms of physically and then tried to send them over to the mental health unit and the mental health unit said, we don't have any beds. And then they went, okay, well, I've got private health insurance. Can I go to the private mental health hospital the private hospital said we've got no beds go home and if it gets worse come back and I was like if it gets worse what is they're worse? dead yeah <laughs> um, so I was in a bit of a state of shock that they were letting this person go home a, or a day or two later because I've I've had hospitals turn people away for suicidal ideation and to a point I can see their issue then because there is a finite amount, number of beds. But when someone has actually carried through with it, at what point do you say, yes, this is a crisis? Yeah, I unfortunately know exactly what you're talking about. So I have had that in my personal life where I've had someone close to me try and end their life multiple times and go to hospital and it's a it's a quick turnaround which is a terrible way to put it and then a if it gets worse which it's that's bad like getting there to that point that is the worst for the, for that person and they're still alive so there's still hope the worst case scenario is that there is no hope and they went all the way I've also seen it in people that I have supported. I've watched someone walk in front of a moving car on a busy road, taken them to hospital, and they've kind of went, well, you know, we've got this recliner that they can just have some some chill time and we'll check in for over a few hours. And, um, yeah, they seem fine. So, you know, if it happens again, unfortunately every hospital is overrun and there is no capacity for ongoing help. And by the time people reach that point, the opportunity to help progressively is gone. Um, so it's that really intensive intervention that's needed and it's getting missed. And unless people have the, the resources, both the contacts and the financial resources to go to a private facility that does have 
capacity as well, then where do they go? What do they do? Which is where I think some some people might go, well, there's 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 things available, like a GP mental health care plan. That's great. That's a great fix for someone who could access it in six to eight weeks maybe. That Where do they go when things are, for them, the worst and they don't see a way out? Yeah, and I think part of the issue is that, and particularly in in a few of the circumstances where I've been the SC, is where I've seen the hospital say, well, you've got NDIS, so you've got support, see you later. And I get frustrated with that because the NDIS support is not a crisis service. The hospital is a crisis service. They're supposed to respond at the point of crisis and the NDIS keeps saying to support coordinators and I'm sure to PRCs, oh, but we're not, you're not crisis. We're not crisis. And I'm like, okay, so. Who is? Who is? Where is? Where do we put them? (laughs) Can someone please tell us where the crisis is? Because where's the crisis care? Because I haven't found it. And I've, I haven't met anyone that has and unfortunately the people that I have spoken to have similar experiences and the things that I've heard from people that I've supported who have tried to end their life is why bother going to hospital? They'll just send me back out. You know, I've even um, supported someone who had nowhere to go and the hospital went, well... You know, we're kind of short on beds and they've had someone offer for them to stay even though we know that that won't work long-term because of historical um, evidence. So we're just going to discharge them into the care of this person that has just shown up out of nowhere and then two days later that person is then homeless and then there is no crisis care for trying to find someone accommodation in the space of an hour that has nothing and no one. So, yeah. So as a not crisis care uh, provider, (laughs) uh, I went into super busy dealing with a time-sensitive issue mode. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and I've done that too and I'm sure every other SC and PRC has similar stories because... The NDIS says to us, well, homelessness is a mainstream issue. You have to go and use the mainstream services for that. And then you go to the mainstream services and then they go, oh, no, we don't have any space or it's not suitable for someone with a disability or something like that, (laughs) usually those two things. And then you're back to NDIS and you go, well, the mainstream can't actually help us with this because they don't have resources either. Plus they do not have crisis disability accommodation. And I had a few years ago, I had one where I had someone with a pretty severe intellectual disability. So physically fine. 
And I took them to a homelessness service and they said, oh, no, we don't have a facility for someone with that disability. And they said, you have to go back to the NDIS. And I said, no, no, the NDIS tells me to go to you guys because they're not a crisis service. They're not a housing. NDIS isn't a housing service. What do we do? And it's just gotten worse with the rental crisis. And when you have mental health on top of a disability, on top of a housing crisis, where it's really dire at the moment. Yeah, and it's hard enough finding just your average rental for a family. The, the trend seems to be that, yes, providers, mainstream, there's no vacancy and they're not suited to people with a physical disability. As you said, most are not suited to people with an intellectual disability, apparently. And then throw in someone with a a mental health condition or mental health challenges. And I've had people, providers say to me, we don't do mental health. So even though there's space, it's, it's a hard pass for anyone who might be diagnosed with a mental health condition, I think partly because there's huge stigma around what that means. And then if someone has been incarcerated as well, it's just no. It's just we don't, we don't um, support people like that. So you, like people who need housing. And so where, where are they going? And then you say back to them, show me a homeless person without a mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll go, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, shrug their shoulders. So that bit drives me really bananas because homeless people, even if they don't have a diagnosed mental illness, they often have at least a bunch of stress at the minute and it's not going well for them. To discriminate against people because of their mental illness is really frustrating, and yeah, we've all we've all seen it. It's it's horrible. Yeah, talking about justice participants or participants who have had contact with the justice system that is adds a layer of complex complexity in the sense of it's so much harder to get them any services. To me, it's not a massive layer of complexity. And most of the time you're like, yeah, you you went to prison, so what? You've done it. Like, let's move on. Uh, but to the rest of the world, it's it's this added layer of oogie boogie. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think the favorite thing that I've heard is, you know, meeting a person where they're at. I don't think I've met any person ever that hasn't had a shitty story or a shitty time of life that they have to keep justifying to everyone to move forward. And I think it's one thing to, you know, I guess look at a person's history on paper and and then just based off that go, nope, to then meet someone where they're at and go, you know, this person... At, at this moment in time, these are the things that they need. These are the goals that they have. These are the strengths that they have. And 
you know, what can we do? How can we support them to do all of these things? What's the first step? Instead of meeting a person and going, well, we can't do this because they were incarcerated and we can't do this because they have a mental health condition and we can't do ongoing family contact because there's been an issue with child safety. Like, instead of seeing the person as where they're at, it's they have all of these barriers because of things that happened in their past and it's just a no. Instead of where they're at today, these are the things they want to do. How do we get there? Not looking retrospectively, how do they get to this point? What are the things they need to overcome to get this in place? And it does add a layer of complexity because some people get their plans when they're still in jail and so contact is limited their understanding of NDIS and the supports available is limited so that when they can access that, it's a lot of education and it's a lot of really trying to get people to understand the needs of that person now. Absolutely. And then if you add in like drug and alcohol issues or, you know, along those sorts of lines, it it gets that bit harder again. So... And people misunderstand addiction a lot and a bit like what you were talking about, there's a lot of stigma behind it and just because it's in your past and it's like on a piece of paper, think, oh, no, I can't deal with addiction. Well, it's it's not that hard to understand. I agree. I think that... There is a lot of misunderstanding around things like addiction. And, you know, I think when people hear the word addiction, they go drugs, alcohol, jail, mental health. Maybe they might throw trauma in there and it's just all bad. When I hear the word addiction, I think of all of the different types of things that people, and I'm using air quotes, get addicted to. And I think when you have that understanding of those things and someone says a buzzword like addiction, you go, well, that could mean anything. And it's normally not something that is an isolated situation. Addiction looks different for people. And just because some things are more socially acceptable and there's a better understanding of of those things and people can frame that in their mind in a more acceptable way, then, oh, it's just all bad. And I think that's what's important to remember is addiction is not an isolated incident and that everyone has things that they, it's a crux. And it's covering trauma. It, it does come back to that trauma. You know, often you might use heroin to dull the pain and then you're using meth to get you awake again. But I understand that idea because like we've discussed when there's no access to working through that trauma how else do you dull that pain that becomes physical and I when there is understanding around behaviors around thought patterns around actions then all of these things addiction mental health it's not scary and I do get frustrated sometimes because I hear I hear it a lot and people bust out buzzwords like trauma-informed 
And every time I hear trauma-informed, I inwardly cringe because, and full disclaimer, I actually have that phrase on my website because when I say it, I mean it. But when I question people who say it, they don't know what that means. They don't know what trauma, a trauma-informed approach means. And so when you explain it to someone and if you see someone with a drug or alcohol addiction and that is all you're seeing, that is not a trauma-informed approach. You're just looking at this one thing. A trauma-informed approach is going, okay, let's take a look at a bigger picture. Let's, what's linking in with this? What's, you know, when did this start? Or, you know, what's the, what's the root of where this began? Because someone didn't start off smoking weed out of the blue. So where did it start? Who did it start with? What stage of their life were they at? Did something happen? And what kind of relationships did that person have at the time that they started? And I think it's really important to know that this is just a season in someone's life. That's awesome. Thank you so much for talking about that. Amy, tell me a bit about your business, like what it's called. How did you start it? Sure. Uh, so my business is called Mind and Me and we I have only gone out recently on my own from July and it came about, it's been mulling for a few years and it's something that I feel really passionate about. So we're a psychosocial wellbeing service. So we have mental health support workers who provide that direct support to people and we also do the psychosocial recovery coaching for NDIS participants and then we also do consulting with businesses and organisations around their workplace and employee wellbeing and psychosocial hazards and it came about because I just felt really passionate about one advocating for people who have mental health challenges and barriers and also spreading the word and trying to break some stigma around what wellness or mental illness is and also neurodivergence because that's another thing that I feel really passionate about that you know having that understanding and that framework is the best way to support someone without them feeling like they have to explain the world to you. So, yeah, we have been helping people with a variety of different things. Um, one of them is, you know, building up that trust and consistency with people. So we make sure that we, at a very minimum, have mental health first aid. We do ongoing training with different mental health disorders and diagnosis, neurodivergence and what that looks like for different people. So different ways that people might mask or, you know, even what masking is, which uh, I think a lot of people uh, might not understand what that is or how hard that is to do for someone who is neurospicy and that, you know, just making people feel validated and heard. So I think that's really important and I have a small team of, of people who work with me to, to help support people. Now you're teaming up with Workways to do some events. 
Yes. Can you tell me about those events? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I met Tanya from Workways at an event a couple of months ago and we happened to be the only two PRCs in the room. So naturally we gravitated towards each other and got to talking and realised that there was events that we were going to and we met some amazing people, um, yourself included, and realised that there really wasn't anything tailored towards mental health, the psychosocial recovery coaching and the NDIS. And we weren't meeting any other PRCs. So we, over coffee, decided that we would just do that. So we had our first event called Psychosocial Matters a couple of weeks ago and we put it out there to all PRCs, new and existing, to come along and share their experiences, their insights, any challenges they were having and kind of talk about how they saw the role and how they saw it different to a support coordinator. And we had a really good response. We didn't have as many PRCs come as what um, we thought we would, but we did have some support coordinators who were really interested to find out what PRCs do and also, you know, ways that they might be able to support people that they currently have through SC funding. And we, the feedback we got was really great. People were wanting to know more. We had to cap our tickets. So um, the next event will be more of an invite only so we can tailor it more to PRCs. But we are also looking to have further events for support coordinators to come and learn more about the role and how collaboration and working together is going to be really beneficial for, for clients and also for participants of NDIS. So a lot of questions I get asked are, what does a PRC do? Why do I need one? I don't think that I need one. And yeah, we've had some conversations around what does that look like and how can we help people understand and and use use the funding and, and get the, the best from it. So we're looking to have another Uh, psychosocial matters in January so location to be advised and also date but I think it's going to be a really exciting use of time uh, for people who want to know more and also want to share best practice and really stand out in that mental health space. Awesome so we will have a link to your website in the episode show notes if people want to find out more. So keep an eye on Amy's website for when that comes up. So, yeah. So our last question of the podcast is, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? The future of the NDIS would look like for me, I think, two things is having people being able to access a support coordinator and a recovery coach. I think that would be really important for people's recovery. And having more regulation around 
qualified mental health support workers. I think there are some regulations, there are some recommendations around things that support workers should have and it's a great base. I think in an ideal world, it would be great to see a bit more emphasis on the mental health side of things, generally having more support workers that are uh, skilled and trained. But I think having that mental health perspective and that ongoing training and development would be great. Yeah, absolutely. What sort of qualifications or experience would you like to see in those support workers? Uh, For the mental health support workers, uh, so I think at a very minimum, mental health first aid and having ongoing training around different diagnoses, different challenges that people have, how that presents and evidence-based interventions that work. And I'm not talking about therapy-related things. I'm talking about people who might be experiencing depression. What are the things that a support worker could flag or look out for or do to support someone with a major depressive disorder because having an understanding of that will help that person first feel validated and understood and also not annoyed that they're having someone come in. Um, You know, having an understanding of what it's like to support someone with obsessive compulsive disorder or a hoarding issue and not having a support worker go in and just clean out the whole house thinking that they've done a great job and then have a PRC then spend months counteracting the trauma that it put that person through as they try and backpedal and recover from that. Because while, yep, you cleaned out what what someone might say is a whole lot of stuff, you've that's not the stuff for that person, you know? That's they're not hoarding stuff. That's just the the physical stuff that you're seeing. They're hoarding attachment, they're hoarding memories, they're hoarding um, safety. But understanding that is really key because unless you do, you're just going to cause more damage. Yes, absolutely. I think hoarding is a great one to talk about because it is so misunderstood. And just going, like you said, just going in and throwing out all their stuff doesn't actually fix the behavior that got them there in the first place yeah you have to do it really sensitively and you have to do it a little bit at a time because otherwise they are traumatized further and like you said there's a there's a huge risk of them just going back and going out to find more things to replace the things that were taken Mm and thrown out and then actually the next time round the hoarding is worse yeah and a bigger problem and sometimes the way i've started with tackling it is just saying there's no fire exit in your house now do you think we can clear the space of of this doorway do you think we can clear the space at this other doorway so that at least if there's a fire you've got exits yeah Anyway, that's how I've approached it before. Yeah, but I mean, taking that safety approach, I've found that 
people I've supported who are hoarders, when asked if they actually want to sleep in their own bed, they do. So they don't, they know that their space and their, the movement around their home, how they can interact with their home, that's not what they want. But they also didn't walk into a house that just happened to be filled with stuff that they couldn't move in. It happens over years and it happens over sometimes multiple locations and multiple events throughout their life. So it's not going to happen in a four-hour clean-up so that someone feels good that they came in and cleaned out a whole bunch of stuff in four hours. That would be great for someone that's not a hoarder and doesn't have attachments to certain things. But you're not going to get a lifetime's worth of stuff thrown out and then that person turn around and be okay. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so great to talk to you. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I was, I've been looking forward to this since you mentioned it and I'm super stoked to be able to be here and just talk my passion and share my, my experiences and, and kind of shine a light on mental health within NDIS. I think it's really important. So thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.